the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 39 The Nightmare Man. Hello everyone and another warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. Tonight's viewing treat is The Nightmare Man, which has been on the list for quite a while. Since the first recording session, yeah. we're now on the fourth recording session. It keeps getting knocked back, so we are watching it tonight. Uh, and we'll watch this episodically because you've said it's it's a four... It's a four-part, half-hour BBC early 80s adaptation of a book called The Child of the Vaginoi by David Wiltshire. There were a couple of TV shows from the early 80s, not including Doctor Who, that I was absolutely in love with from the moment I saw them. One was The Day of the Triffids, and we'll do that at some mm. point. John the Teen, that one. This was the other one. Quatermass Conclusion. I was allowed to stay up late to watch The Quatermass Conclusion because it started at nine o'clock, and I was only a, a wee in at the time, so I had a special dispensation because I made such an enormous fuss about it because I'd seen the Quatermass Experiment film with my grandmother every time it was on, on telly, and was quite obsessed with it. So I was allowed to step to watch The Great American Conclusion. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about <laughs> The Nightmare Man, which was only a year or two later. I would, I would still have been pre-teenage at this point, but I absolutely loved it, and still do. And I can, I can re-watch this. I've probably watched this more times than I've watched the majority of Doctor Who stories. Crikey, right. This is a sapphire and steel for me. Right. So I'll actually be quite interested to see what you think coming to it fresh, because for me, there's always that recollection of how much I loved it yeah, at the time. Yeah. We'll not say too much about the plot. No, don't give, don't Having, give been, away, having yeah. been accused of spoiling earlier. Earlier in the evening, we have had a spoiled class act. Only very mildly, but enough. So I shall stop you. Because you've had Dubonnet. I've had gin and Dubonnet. And, oh, God, it hits the spot. In a previous session. So we'll say no more about Nightmare Man. But but we will talk about gin. Whip out the tonic screwdriver. Now, for this session, we have Mason's Yorkshire Tea Gin. We do. So what do we think? Not very much, frankly. I... Do not like it. It's um, it's a bit drain cleaner. It's sharp. It's, it doesn't really have any particularly pleasant aftertaste. It tastes nothing like tea. I'll say that much out of it. There's again, there's an aniseedy overtone to it. Mm, um, I, there, there's a. There's a, there's a sharpness and a bitterness. It's not a nice sharpness or no. bitterness because I, I like those aniseed overtones, the ones that we had earlier that you were saying that about. I actually liked, I don't particularly like this gin. No, and that's going to be my first one, Bernard. I really don't like it. It's a chore getting through. Um, I don't think it's as bad as that, but I think it's a two, Bernard. Mm. I'm, I'm not wildly keen on this. And after I'm finished this one, I'm going to be back on the gin and Dubonnet. It, it's not one for me, so I shall draw that one too. Yeah. Um, a grim- sadly, I have to agree. So, well, walking away from a disappointing tonic screwdriver... Shall we um, go downstairs to the Black Archive and see what's in there? Yes, what would you like in the Black Archive? Let's open the door and pull something out. My retrieval from the Black Archive this time is the Doctor Who radio series. Or certainly the, the pilot episode with Peter Cushing 
from 1967. Now, I believe there's a fair bit of documentation that categorically proves this thing was recorded and exists somewhere. It has long since been lost. It's largely accepted that it it wasn't a continuation of the Doctor Who character from the movies, but was more akin to the television series, although would have had the granddaughter Susan and the same background of Doctor Who from the movies. So it's a bit of a, a mismatch of styles. But just as a curio, I would love to hear the pilot they recorded. And apparently it was widely believed to be with Peter Cushing. So that would have been worth hearing. And was it just a a one-off or was there a series? No, it was only a one-off. A pilot was recorded that was never picked up um, according to paperwork. But if it has been heard by anybody, I've not read an interview with anyone that's actually heard the thing, that the documentation exists. I just think as a curio, it would be nice to have it back. Hmm. Well, my choice for the Black Archive this time around is a completely missing science fiction serial from the 1960s called The Big Pool. Okay. And it's about an alien influence on Earth that starts affecting people in pairs. And each time the influence happens, the number of pairs that this is affecting doubles up. Right. It had fantastic reviews at the time. Lots of people that you talk to about science fiction from the uh, TV from the 60s talk about the big pool um, very affectionately. I don't know a huge amount about it. I've never read the script. There isn't any of it that survives. But because so many people are as positive as they are, I would love to see it. Well, those are today's two choices for the Black Archive. Uh-huh. So shall we carry on with something that we can actually see? So this is The Nightmare Man. It was uh, based on a novel by David Wiltshire, adapted by Robert Holmes and directed by Douglas Kenfield. So there's who credits there um, as the two leads. One is Celia Imry. I thought the title and, screen is in front yeah. of us for the DVD. It looks like her in a very it, early role. It is Celia Imry. Well, this is 1981, so it's a while ago. Mm. I can't remember if she's been in Doctor Who. Yes, she has. She was in a Matt Smith one, The Bells of St. John, I think. Oh, yes, she was the voice of the Great Intelligence. Um, because, I can't remember. Because when the Great Intelligence withdraws, she's there has, having lost decades of her life yeah, and no idea how to recover. And the male lead is James Warwick, who was in Earthshock. That's James Warwick, without yes. a tash. Well, there yes. you go. It would have been about the same time that he was doing Partners in Crime, I think, with Francesca Granis, which we'll do when we do Agatha Christie. The list of stuff we have to do stretches into infinity. I'll be dead before we've finished and what we've got to watch. Right. Uh, you without, youngsters, no stamina. Right, so... Without further ado... We'll crack on with episode one of The Nightmare Man, which was from the, 5th of, uh, the 1st of May, 1981. Ron VT. <laughs> The Nightmare Man. What did you think? It could almost be a Doctor Who story. Yeah, it crackles along. It's a very linear storyline. The um, story is set on a fairly remote Scottish island and the 
the two lead characters are a local pharmacist played by Celia Imrie and uh, the local dentist who's a, uh, an incomer to the island played by James Warwick. And actually, I can't think of another action hero who's a dentist in it's... book, film, anything. I can't actually think of another one that's a pharmacist either. So slightly unusual set of of lead characters um, with a lead policeman played by Morris Reeves. Mm. Starts off with a couple of visitors to the island. There's a visiting um, army colonel and a, a mainlander who vi- who visits and they, they've obviously been chatting on the boat or know each other from beforehand. There's a Canadian ornithologist who's there who's camping out on the uh, on the cliffs. And it's not long into the episode before the dentist character discovers parts of a body on the the golf course. Bits more are found. They they assume that it's the female visitor to the island. Uh, they, the locals know that it's somebody who has recently bought one of the holiday cottages. And when the police go and investigate, then they find it that the holiday cottage has been ripped apart and that there are more bits of the body there, and it's strongly implied that part of it is the missing head. Mm. After that, the action moves to the Canadian ornithologist who's writing up some notes in his tent, and it was mentioned previously that he's got a camera that isn't working properly and is um, just randomly taking photos or taking photos at the very slightest impetus, and he's recording his notes as he's doing this, then his tent is opened and something comes in. You see him screaming. You don't actually know what the something is, and that's at the point at which the episode ends. Which is where it cries out for the Doctor Who screaming to the end signature. It it does. It It's a very Doctor Who-feeling TV series. Maybe that's why I like it as much as I do. It's probably because um, Douglas Camfield directed it and Graham um, Harper's on the production staff. And Robert Holmes adapted it. And it's there's a couple of Who alumni in it. Although, I see it wasn't in it for decades afterwards. But um, James Masters was in it. James Warwick. Been, uh, James Warwick, rather, not Masters. Uh, James Warwick must have been recording Earthshock almost at the same time. But it's amazing. Time enough to grow a, grow a tash, though. It's a hell of a tash. But it's amazing what a tash, a different hairstyle. And a silly and a, hat. And an army accent can age a man like that. And bear in mind, it's only two years away from when Caves of Androzani was made. And Maurice Reeves, in those intervening two years, they grew him a grey beard and greyed his hair and turned him into this grizzled old thing. And in this, he does not look... He looks positively youthful in mm. this. And there's James Cosmo as well, who is kind of as big, as ubiquitous to Scottish stories as Telford Thomas is to Welsh stories. Although I must admit, I, I was expecting right at the beginning for John Mudnut to turn up. Yeah. Well, it's only one episode in. Um... <laughs> James Cosmo, I can't remember being in uh, in Doctor Who, but he's been in a million different things. He has his IMDb listing is quite impressive. He does a fantastic. Have I told you about all the Queen's Men? No. Oh, it's, it's absolutely hilarious because uh, we were talking about ideas earlier. All the Queen's Men is a Matt LeBlanc film. Okay. And it's a wartime action film to infiltrate the um, the Enigma mm-hmm. factory, which was entirely staffed by women. So the infiltration team they send in, which includes James Cosmo, is in drag. Oh, God. It's all about drag queens with you, isn't it? It it is. This can't be a surprise. With a drag tutor from the army, played by Eddie Izzard. 
most of the cast play it for laughs and James Cosmo is doing his best comedy acting and Eddie Izzard is just chewing the scenery as he always does. Matt LeBlanc thinks he's in an action movie. It is an absolutely hilarious film for many of the wrong reasons. Mostly Matt LeBlanc looking so uncomfortable in a dress, but obviously this is his big chance after he left Friends and Lost in Space had bombed. It's really entertaining, but not because it's a particularly good film. It's one of those that's so bad it's entertaining. Yeah, I'm familiar with the genre. So what did you think of The Nightmare Man? I enjoyed it, but largely because it's just like watching a, a Doctor Who adventure I've never seen. So um, I can't work out whether the camera filter for the whatever it is hmm. is always in red and it's accompanied by the... Groaning, the weird breathing panting, thing. Yeah. You know, could be a monster, could just be somebody with breathing difficulties. Again. I don't think we did discriminate against the adenoidal here, do we? Oh, yes. Anyone's fair game. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't work out whether it's going to turn out to just be a straight murder mystery that's trying to fool the viewers or whether it's going to turn into something a little bit fantasy sci-fi. Knowing you, it's going to turn out to be fantasy sci-fi. But I don't want to know anything. I, I want to watch say, this. Bear in mind how much I love Agatha Christie. Yes. So it could be so anything. I'm, I'm not pure fantasy sci-fi. Mm. So, but no, I'm enjoy- I enjoyed the first uh, part. Excellent. Shall so, we crack on with the second? Part two. Okay, well, that was episode two of The Nightmare Man. It's not helping itself not trying to be Doctor Who because it feels like a... It does feel like a Doctor Who just missing the Doctor, frankly. It does, and the team behind it, that's not a a huge surprise. David Wiltshire didn't ever write for Doctor Who, and I'm not sure any of his other work has been adapted for TV either. He's... uh, I've just looked him up. He's still a publishing author, although he's now in his 80s. The book that this is based on is excellent. It's the children of... The child of the Vodronoi. Yes. This and Day of the Triffids, which was round about the same time, I remember being so impressed by at the time that I went to the the, um, the local library straight after seeing part one of each. Got, got hold of the book and read it before part two. So I was obviously a little less concerned about spoilers in those mm. days. I loved this at the time that it was put out. I still love it. I think it's a wonderful piece of television. It is very Doctor Who feeling. And as, as things go on, it's it's quite odd that the the local police are relying on the local dentists to help on on this. Yeah, and um, would it surprise you to learn that David Wiltshire is a qualified dentist? Because I can't yeah. actually think of any other drama where the the, the lead character is a dentist. There's that that comedy thing with um, the bloke who played Wolfie, Robert Lindsay. Yeah, is it outnumbered? No, that was Hugh Dennis. In that case, that's not the one that I'm thinking of. Oh, my, was, my family, my family, that was the one, which I never saw one of. Yeah, it, it's standard it, sitcom. It's film. very run of the mill sitcom. Yeah. Um, trying to be two point four children, but without any of the slightly weirdy bits. Mm. Back to the Nightmare Man. Well, the guy in the tent, the um, Canadian. Yeah, he's now despite being dead for the whole of part two, has had a, two cliffhangers devoted to him. So they, they spend a lot of part two talking about how they're not able to get in touch with him. Other things going on in part two is that uh, Gafferkin is called in to make a cast of the bite marks on the, um, on the body that they do have, which they've now firmly identified as the visiting woman from the, the mainland. Mm. He ends up with some very clear impressions, which I didn't think he could... You could do that easily. But it's a turtle with some human teeth. When you look at the set, the, uh, the impression that they've got, it's it looks like a human set of teeth apart from all the upper front teeth mm. replaced with a single plate. 
And Gafakin is just throwing wild theories left and right. And he, he goes on about genetic experiments. And this would be a perfect place to do it. He goes on about something from the sea related to a turtle. Uh, by the end of the episode, he's thinking in terms of aliens. Mm. There is a nice little pod they, thing washed up on the beach. That, that's right at the, yeah. the end of the episode. I mean, it's quite nice that all the other characters basically just ignore all these theories. Yeah, and it's sort of, yeah, oh, that, that's, that's very nice for you. you. You carry on thinking that. We'll be over here. We'll be over here in the corner with the logic. Yeah, the Morris Reeves police character is, he just raises a, an eyebrow, downs a whiskey, and just cracks on with actually investigating the facts in front of him. Yeah, and he, he does the, the, the Dower Scots very mm. nice. It's, I'm glad that you've looked up that it, this was actually filmed in Cornwall at Port Isaac. Yeah, so same place as Doc Martin. Yeah, because there was a shot of uh, a ramp down to the water. And I thought, that looks very familiar. And there's, there's some lovely out, um, outside broadcasts. Well, almost all of that. I can't... There's no studio work at all that I can see. If it is, mm. it's seamlessly done. I think Wikipedia said that it was all filmed on location. Mm. Because all of it so far as well has been done on video. There's been no filmed inserts at all. So you don't get that jar between... Inside and outside. Mm. It's incredibly entertaining. Um, The main characters have decided... Have looked at the pattern of uh, where the attacks are happening or they assume they're happening in the case of Simmons. And they're following a straight line. And the straight line leads to the Coast Guard station. They've also recognised that there is some radiation source that they they think is moving with the whatever it is, and that it's making very good time to go mm. over some very harsh terrain in bad weather. So in Skip, the uh, Morris Reeves police inspector is still thinking that he's some sort of lunatic who just is so dissociated from reality, he just doesn't notice the weather, which is a reasonable thing to consider. If it wasn't for the fact that they know that these bodies are being torn apart. Mm. They also spend an awful lot of time going on about how bad the weather is. Yeah. And the episode finishes after they've taken this treacherous cliff path led by... The chemist. Fiona. The map drawing chemist. Yeah. And if if she is being used as a um, as a guide, then there is a sensible reason for her being there. Dentist blokey tags along, again, not for any particularly good reason that I can no, say. No, not really. He's... He, he's front and centre of the investigation, and it's never really explained why. But that, that's a minor niggle. So they, they, they take this cliff path. They run into Colonel Howard, who is the um, visiting instructor from the School of Mountain Warfare in Inverness, who's out for a walk and very compliant with being told, go back to your hotel for the sake of your safety. They do, they do say to him that the woman from Rose Cottage has been murdered, although they don't give him any more details. Further along the path, after they, they see him, they've... They find some sort of submarine pod on the beach with uh, a very sort of black, sleek, alien slash futuristic slash sci-fi design. The Hoomobile, basically. In black. Yes. And some lump of wire that's covered in blood. And so they carry on after that, get to the Coast Guard station where the Coast Guards have been worried about a, a, a moving radiation source. And they also, and, and right at the end of the episode, they find Simmons' body which has been ripped apart, and they say nothing human could have done this. Mm. And that's the end of episode two. So it's cracking on a a good pace. pace. The only slightly jarring thing is why is the dentist in the middle of all of this? It was James Warwick, who was the the token handsome guy of uh, one of of them at at the time. He was dropped into things. I know that he was used as the handsome face. Yes, with a posh but not full-on RP accent. No, we're, we're drifting away from RP. This is early 80s. Yes. 
We're becoming depaulered. Depaulered. How many? Yeah. How many paulers would you give my RP accent? Is it? It's, oh, only we have another scale. Another scale. <laughs> just eventually, X and Moss experiment episodes are just going to be a full series of features. We won't watch any television at all. Gin, Black Archive, Paulers, Drag Queens. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, and not... so, back to the, the television we started off watching. But how many Paulers would you give the RP? Right, so it's on with <laughs> on with part three, which is Tell traditionally, in Doctor Who terms, the filler episode where things slow down a little before the final denouement in episode four. Oh, jolly good. Whether that's true or not in this case, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. Run VT on part three. Episode three, and there's quite a few increasingly wild theories being thrown about by people that have up to now been quite sensible. It's still mainly gaffiking. Mm. And actually, certainly at the start of the episode, the police, while he's not around, are not impressed by his more wild theories and laughing about the fact that he's suggested that this might be down to aliens. Um, quite a bit happens in that episode for filler yeah, part, part three. The policeman who's guarding the uh, the little pod thing that they found, which once you see it looks like it looks an awful lot like Thunderbird Four sprayed black, doesn't it? <laughs> he gets attacked, and the little bit of bloodstained tubing that they ha- they found taken from his pocket. Now, quite why it's in his pocket in the first place. Rather than an evidence room. Because it's obvious, because it's already been to the laboratory, mm. because their doctor was saying it's human blood, but with loads of white cells. So quite why they took it to the laboratory and then gave it to that bloke to put in his pocket rather than take back to the police station. Well, that's a, a minor little niggle. So that, get, that gets nicked. Colonel Howard receives a phone call from um, somebody on the island dressed in army fatigues with incredibly unsubtle codes. It's Someone unique. might be listening to this. So, is the tablecloth red? Has the chicken laid the egg yet? Is the mother mother bird? Are you back in the hen coop? Yeah, it, it was that level of subtlety. And there have also been sightings of uh, people in um, army fatigues on several places in the island. The stuff from Simmons' camp that was wrecked it is looked through and find that his faulty camera has gone through an entire reel of films. They, they wonder whether that's caught an image of the, the killer. And also his tape recorder was recording at the time of his death, so they've got that. Fiona marries the two together and they, they have a little slideshow where they can hear his death and see a few images from it, but you never get a clear picture of the, the killer. They listen to the tape and think that the noises that they hear from the killer are as much anything laughter. Mm. That was a bit of a leap of uh, imagination there. It does kind of sound mm. like it when you listen to it again. Mm. And then the episode finishes up at the Coast Guard station where we'd been thinking that the uh, killer was aiming for anyway. And the th- uh, the three Coast Guards barricade themselves in, but then they, uh, they notice that it's getting colder, so... One goes out to check on the the fuel supply, finds out that it's been turned off and he gets killed by the um, the creature. The other two come out to see what's going on, realise that he's been killed and run back into the Coast Guard station and lock the door, but they've locked the killer in with them. Um, it attacks the, the senior Coast Guard and the final shot of the episode is just um, focusing in on the, the shocked face of the youngest Coast Guard. Reg Hollis from the bill. They've already knocked off Freddie Boswell from Bread, 
Yeah. And who was, was the third one? Who did we say? The third um, card? Of the, of the... The helicopter pilot from the Demons. Yeah. And <clears throat> Reg Hollis from the Bill, who's the youngest Coast Guard station, was also Ducker in, uh, in Kinder. Kinder. And while we're doing Who alumni, Colonel Howard was one of the spaceship crew in Underworld, and the Doctor was Ramo in Underwater Menace. And, of course, Morris Reeves was in... Um, Caves of Androzani. Caves of Androzani. When they brought the submarine Thunderbird 4 thing back, it was suspiciously light. But they do mention that, and they say, what's this made of? Oh, I missed that bit. Oh, right. Oh, do you not remember him saying, what's this made of, and James Cosmo says, kryptonite? Oh, yeah, I, I yeah. heard that toss-away comment. But, uh... Yeah, that, that was as a response to, this is really light, what's mm. it made of? Um, right. So they, so they do acknowledge that. Right, so shall we crack on with the fourth and final part? Fourth and final part, which I'm quite looking forward to, I guess. The fourth and final part of The Nightmare Man, and it's all nicely wrapped up. Right? It is. It's a very busy episode. Mm. So we start off with the sole surviving Coast Guard under siege in their um, Coast Guard station, manages to set off a flare. Actually manages to set off two flares, mm. first at the, um, the, the creature, killer. and we get our first partial view of it and see that it's humanoid in some sort of fairly thick bodysuit. Well, it's not our first view, is it? Because we've seen the photos before, but they, they were quite... They were quite indistinct. Yeah. yeah. So he, he gets off a... Uh, fires a flare at the the killer, who then runs outside to roll around and, and put the flames out. He's then able to set off a, a flare to alert the, uh, the people in the town that they're under attack, who aren't able to send help because they recognise that by the time they get there, whatever's happened will have happened, and it's still the middle of the night and treacherous weather. While he's firing off the flare, he's doing that through a window and the killer comes and grabs him out of the window. So all three of the, the Coast Guards end up dead. Colonel Howard turns out to be... Did we already know that he was... He, he was acting very suspiciously it, in previous episodes. all the way through. Um, but he, he turns up at the police station in full military get-up, complete with the, the parachutist who, who's been spotted on the island. And they take over control. They declare martial law. They also reveal that they've cut the, the phone lines in and out of the island. But the police have maintained a connection through um, a policeman stationed at the very southernmost point of the island. So they still have a partial connection across the mainland. Colonel Howard reveals that the, uh, this is a, a military craft. And there's a fairly slow reveal of exactly mm, what, yeah. what's happening. Bits and pieces of information come out. While he's talking to um, Gaffer King and Fiona, he sets up his base at the golf club, takes them there. Again, never really explained why the local dentist is the important person to take along. The presence of the Fiona as the pharmacist is explained because... She's doing all the useful stuff, like developing photographs and... Yeah. And it turns out that um, the vessel was equipped with a, a biological warhead and... When, it, when it's light, he, um, his military team land on the, the beach and bring with them the uh, antitoxin for the biological warfare agent. So she's very useful as the, as the, um, the island pharmacist. Once the, the military recover the, the capsule, recognise that the, uh, the tanks of biological agent have been emptied and the whole island needs the, um, the antitoxin, then there's a, a sensible reason for her to be there. He's kind of there as decoration, really. He doesn't. He doesn't, at this point, fulfil any particularly useful role. He's he's there to keep her company. He did analyse the cast of the teeth from the bite marks. Yeah, two episodes ago. Yeah, two episodes ago, and he's been riding on the coattails of that ever since. 
It's never alluded to again, even in the reveal, why this bizarre uh, bite pattern. Yeah, there is, right at the very end, with the policeman. So as more and more uh, information is revealed, it turns out that this is a Russian submarine. Colonel Howard and his team are Russian sent to recover it and that it is a cybernetically controlled device and the the bits of wire, bloodstained wire, that they've been founding over the island are the, are the cybernetic control mechanisms that are sort of falling out of this creature, taking bits of his brain with yes. them. And he's becoming more animalistic and um, running purely on, on instinct. The tooth bit is that the the helmet with the, that has these uh, these ganglia going through it is bolted onto the jaw. This is another bit that I've missed. Right. It, that comes right at the very end when the the police are doing their right their recap. Colonel Howard sends his men away with the um, with the capsule with the Vodrenoi and says that he's going to stay for twenty four hours to try and track down this submersible pilot, uh, a Russian by the name of Gonyeva. In the end, he goes out to, to try and find him and gets attacked, attacked and killed by Genieva. Gafferkin and Fiona are taking the, the antivirus back to town so that the doctor can uh, inoculate everybody. And Gafferkin run, runs forward, grabs Howard's gun that was knocked out of his hand by Genieva and shoots him down. And at that point, Genieva just keels over. Mm. He and Howard are both dead and their bodies are taken away by the, um, the Russian paratroops. And then there's a, a little recap scene with the uh, the police just sort of tying up all the loose ends and saying that they'd... Um, they'll never believe him on the mainland because they'll think he was a drunk. Yeah. When all they he's done, all they've all done throughout the entire story is drink whiskey and smoke fags. Yeah, and run about with shotguns. Yes. Um, there's a lot of... The islanders were just set loose with shotguns. I think they were part of the Coast Guard, but they were all an entire squadron of local... Yeah, so you don't know how many of those have actually been picked <laughs> off by... <laughs> By the wandering killer. Although they do say at the end that there were five bodies, which would be the three coast guards. That they, they know about. So, yeah, so they've got themselves a little little island treasure hunt. Like Easter. For all the picking... Yeah, the alternative of, Easter eggs. Well, yeah. For the picking it to bits, that was actually bloody good. And I did like the fact that there was a proper... Part four did give you a proper explanation. It wasn't some fantasy or deus ex. It was a proper reason and everything was explained. Yeah, and I, I quite like the fact that Gaffigan keeps coming up with these more and more and more wild theories that everybody just ignores. And he really is sort of playing the role of the sort of 1960s Hammer film, film de- decorative female character who doesn't really do very much. It's the role reversal. Pretty. Can, yeah. Um, and it's the... Fiona, the female character, who is useful and competent and has reasons to be places, and he's just there, dra- dragged along as her plus one. I don't know how many days this spans, but there's been no allusion to him losing out on any work as a, as a result of this. There must not be a, a high dentist rate. Um, it, it's all over and done within a couple of days, I mm. think. But nobody's screaming down the telephone for a dental appointment. No, in fact, one of the policemen says, right, he's coming out with this sort of rubbish, then next time I need my teeth doing, I'm going to the mainland. But yes, that I've always enjoyed The Nightmare Man. Mm. I've, I've watched it a lot of times. It's something I've seen more often than, than an awful lot of Doctor Who stories. I don't know how it's managed to, to dodge being on our list for so long. It's been but, on No, it's the, been on our list since, since, since day the first one. recording session. And... It's because we plan quite carefully in advance and then ignore the plan. Ignore it completely, yes. So the the plan that we have for this weekend, we've done almost nothing from, <laughs> and a whole load of extra stuff that we didn't plan to do. So 
But it's all good stuff. Look forward to it, kids. The, the, the plans aren't even a guideline. They're just sort of something yes. for me to do when I get bored. <laughs> it nurtures our OCD side. I don't think that needs nurturing. No. I think that's fairly well developed. Well, I'm getting ready for another Amelia Rumford session because the sausage sandwiches are... That just sounds wrong. (laughs) Well done, you. You can twist anything innocent into something innuendous. Sausage sandwiches and a recording break. And uh, we will see you in the next episode. I'm sure that at the end of this there will be uh, an extra of some sort. As always, everybody, thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed The Nightmare Man. I would recommend you haunting it down. It, it's long been a favourite of mine, right from when it was first shown. So, yeah, I would highly recommend it. Although we have just told you the entire plot. so it, It's a good one to watch, but fewer surprises now. The preceding programme contains spoilers. We will see you in a fortnight's time, boys and girls. Have fun. Take care. To round off the podcast this time, we've got an interview with Colin Baker, which I recorded in 2007. This was an event at the Cavern Club in Liverpool on the 6th of May, called Who at the Cavern, hosted by the World Doctor Who group Fans Like Us. The interviewer is Toby Haydock. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome onto the stage Doctor Number 6, the magnificent Mr Colin Baker! (laughs) (laughs) Very well, are you well? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm Hello, well. all of you. Hello. I'm Colin. What's your name? <laughs> what, uh, what are you up to at the moment? I, I opened a play a week before last called Bedroom Farce, which is touring with Louise Jameson, the lovely Beth Cordingly, who was in the bill for a few years, the lovely James Midgley, who was in Cutting It, playing the camp one in Cutting It. Uh, it's a great cast, very uh, nice cast. And you're up the road in Salford? In Salford next week, opening on Tuesday. There. So if you feel like popping over to the Lowry... See Colin Baker's bedroom farce. See Colin Baker's bedroom farce, which is very familiar in my home. Yeah, we're touring until we finish in Glasgow in August. So uh, it'll be on at some venue near you. So come and see, it's very funny. I suppose we start by saying, have you been watching the new series of Doctor Who? I have. Don't tell me about last night's, because I didn't see that, because I was on stage, and I shall be watching it with my daughters when I get home tonight. Uh, Yeah, I love it. It's an interesting one from somebody that was obviously in the show um, just prior to its evil axing by Mr. Michael Gray. D- did you did you punch the air when Michael Gray came back to the BBC and the first weekly schedule that was on when he became Critroller was Come Dancing and Doctor Who, which were the two things that he'd axed? I did find it uh, slightly entertaining. And, and also the fact that he is now so far removed from that area of decision-making. Because the last thing that the chairman of the BBC can do is is talk about individual programmes. Although I have to say he has had the courtesy to say that he thought he was rather good now, which in a way makes it even worse. He, was, he actually, because it was absolute crap when I did it. Yeah, but he did, before it was on though, he did say again, I think he's from the Gerald Rettner school of um, uh, yes. corporate branding, because he did say, when they said Doctor Who's coming back, will you, what, uh, you know, Doctor Who's coming back, will you interfere? And he said, no, so long as I don't have to watch it. You think that's that's yeah. sending out an excellent signal there. You, know, you big up your product. But he was wrong, I and we do. were right. See, I, I quite like that, because we are so spoon-fed with lowest common denominator television. Something that offends nobody, so we'll watch that. It's kind of on. I'd rather have programmes that have passions one way or the other. That's the thing about Doctor Who. You either love it and watch it, or you don't. And... There are more people now that love it and watch it, which is very, very good. 
but at least it inspires some kind of positive reaction. Well, it's sort of you're offending the right people. But I met somebody recently who said they had never watched Doctor Who because they didn't think it was their kind of programme. Fair enough. They've got the courage to make specific programmes, not try and please everybody, but really please a lot of people, instead of quite pleasing even more. Well, I remember a school teacher saying to me when I was a kid, when some of the kids at school took the mick out of the fact that I watched Doctor Who, he pointed out that I watched Doctor Who actively in that it, well, I, it didn't just spoon feed me and it was a sort of glaze. Yeah. Um, and then I forgot about it, but I actually, you know, went to meet actors and wrote and found yes. out and stuff like that. So Doctor Who sort of inspires people to do more than just the 25 minutes or 45 minutes or 42 minutes plus coming next trailer. Yeah. They're controversial. Um, that, uh, the, 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 you, so the telly watching goes, goes beyond, it's like reading Shakespeare or performing Shakespeare. You, you know, do you hate trailers too? Do I? No, I like them. I hate trailers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want trailers. I don't want to see bits of what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see it when it comes next. <laughs> and the other thing I don't want is the screen going at the end. No, oh, no, yes. And people going, shout, 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 some crap's coming on in a minute. Yeah. Make sure he's watching. Uh, I want to, first of all, I might be in the moment. You know, I might be, oh, it's really sad there. Yeah. I don't want some idiot shouting at me. I might also want to see who was the second grip's brother-in-law's dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's a bit in my show about that, so please don't think I stole it from you. Um, but it is that you idea... stole it from all of us. <laughs> it's, that, it's, it's that idea that we can't be trusted to, to keep watching when writing comes up on the yes. screen, which says an awful lot about what they think about us. Yes. And, and the idea that... Because I used to, I don't know, I used to watch the credits because I find out what the names of people were, and then I'd write them letters, and they tell me what it was like to work in television, yes. and things like that. But obviously we can't expect this generation's children to read stuff. I mean, God, what do we expect? Um, do you or even to still carry the programme with you, you know, to be in the story and thinking about it. Sometimes the words going up, even if you don't read them, give you a moment to transition from something you were strongly involved in to real life. Well, they, they did it with the last episode of Casanova, which ended on a real heart-rending moment was the when one it was that, first that's broadcast. That's the one that, only one that made me write a letter. How you, funny, you that's example yeah, yeah, I, I as well. Yeah, that was sort of what inspired me particularly because it was such a yeah. bang moment and then it's yeah. suddenly, oh, please tune in next for Celebrity Gynecology Live or whatever yeah. it was yeah. that they've got, they've got coming Absolutely. on. Absolutely, that, how funny. That is exactly the one that I always cite as well. So do you think that now you that you... that too. I, th I think, yeah. we're all, I think that's, that's why we're not too fans. Yeah. Yeah. Those sort of things matter. There's famine in the third world. It doesn't matter. Look at the credits. Um, uh, do you, do you think, as a result, you know, you, you witnessed uh, Doctor Who being treated very badly, I think, by the BBC, and then, then those wilderness years. Do you think now, in retrospect, it needed to come off and come back on again? Who knows? Um, it did, and it's very good now, so clearly that worked. The other thing that's happened, of course, is that it is now valued by a new audience. My own children, they, they'd never watched it. They were too young to watch it when it finished, and then they've grown up, and now it's back on again. And over the years, I've said to my daughters, when they've said, Lord, oh, I need to do nothing to watch, raining. I said, would you like to watch Ark of Infinity? <laughs> would you like to watch, what was I in? The Two Doctors? <laughs> they go, no, no, no. Then suddenly along comes Christopher Eccleston. They go, about third episode, one of my daughters said, is that Doctor Who the same Doctor Who that you were in? Yes. Yeah. Well, you were... The Doctor? Yes. <laughs> Slow burn, hand, shelf, video. Wow! Yeah. And 
then they watched them all, and suddenly I wasn't that boring elderly kid who wanders around telling them what to do. I was somebody who'd actually achieved something in my life, which is quite nice. <laughs> was, it, was it galling that being a Manchester lad in your day, lots of planets didn't have a north? <laughs> you know, I'm the only proper doctor that's come from north, you know. And, excuse me, Sylvester McCoy, Scotland, how, how north do you want to get? <laughs> um, Tom Baker, Liverpool, me, Manchester, Paul McGann, Liverpool, but we weren't allowed to talk with our... Well, I mean, I, I had to learn to talk like this in order to become an actor. Because you, you, when you were talking like that at, uh, as an actor in the 1960s, you didn't get work. You didn't get much work. Um, and uh, I, you know, I've never got a northern part. And it's when I spoke at school. I had to talk like this at home. I mean, it was a complicated life. I became a schizophrenic. My, my parents came from London. I went to school and they, I was posh. You know, posh git. So I started talking like that at school. And like that at home, it wasn't posh at all, it was just London. Hence I became an actor. This is boring. That's what I just Alright, you've just recorded a commentary for Time Lash. That's an interesting question. Is there a clause in your cut? Because I, I, when I spoke to you 21 years ago, you sort of admitted it wasn't perhaps the best. It, do you have to put a spin on something? Because obviously you're selling a product. Is it is it difficult? if it's a story that is not among your favourites. But you know, when you're actually doing it, you don't know that it's substandard. You get a script and you think, yeah, that's all right, I'll do that. Um, and it's only in the, in the doing and then the viewing, you think, yeah, that, it just doesn't quite hang together as a story. But then watching it 20 years later, it wasn't as bad either as I and everybody else had thought it was at the time. And there, was a, there was a kind of, Naval gazing going on around about the time I was doing Doctor Who. There was an awful lot of people with an awful lot of opinions about it, and it's a perfectly acceptable story. In some ways, now this is this is controversial, controversial <coughs> alert. I think some of the stories of the new Doctor Who don't bear too close examination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they are done so well. They are done with such bravura, with such excellent editing, great sets, great CGI. But the actual storyline is a bit dodgy. And I, I think if, if you were doing a time lash script now, with what you could do now, you'd think it was a damn fine script. Is that because, is that because the nature of television has changed in, in that they've grasped the fact it's a visual medium? The stories that you did, the storytelling element of, of television when, when we were growing up is that you were grabbed by story and characters, or, or some of you were fetuses. And, so, so fetuses you have rights. I want that to be understood. Do you think the speed at which television is taken, is that, was that an inevitability? And is that a, a bad thing or is it just different? Well, the speed different at which it's done or the speed at which it's the, delivered? The speed at which it's delivered. The speed of delivery seems to be inevitable. Um, I did a series, well, the brothers in the 70s, you had five, ten minute scenes in that, boardroom scenes, which worked then. But audiences would be going and getting a takeaway and coming back and the scene would still be on. Um, now, if you don't cut within a minute to something else, the perception is that audiences won't you know, be grabbed. And of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If that's what you deliver, it's like me drinking Red Bull, which, uh, to my shame, I do when I'm working to some driving home, oh, Red Bull, keep me awake. And the end result is you like that. And television is getting a bit like that. I mean, some of those American cop series where, you know, there's so much movement and cutting. Um, I thought, I'll never adjust to this, and I have. I'm now used to it, which 
it's kind of a visual drug, isn't it? And the, there's an element of the flim-flam about the new Doctor Who. It's very clever, and it's very well done. But if you actually write, this is your exam question, write down the logic of that story. And you know, in a nice, neat time frame, and how these things happened and why they happened. And you know, perhaps we'd better not do that. Let's just enjoy it. Just enjoy and that's what it is. It's pure and simple entertainment. And I think it's blooming good. I really do. I, I enjoy watching it myself. And it's family entertainment again. Families are sitting, they really are. It's not just hype. Families really are sitting down and watching it. Mums and dads and kids together. Well, and there aren't many programmes that have that effect. It's an audience they didn't believe existed um, before Doctor Who yeah. came out. And I've got two kids, and so I'm doing my best to indoctrinate them in, into the ways of the TARDIS. And his favourite story is The Two Doctors. So, really? Oh, yes. How old? He's seven. So... Lovely, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing my bit. I'm making sure the next generation carries it forward. But you said before about your time as Doctor Who, people, there were a lot of people who had a lot to say about Doctor Who. And I, I, I will admit to having been, it was my first experience with fandom, and I was at that age, sort of 12, 13, 14, where you got some of these fanzines that were sort of like, Doctor Who's not as good as it used to be, and, and all that sort of thing. And that's very easy to get carried away with, because it was very sort of tabloidy, and I thought you got the rough end of that. I, I don't know if you've ever uh, scammed any Doctor Who internet sites now. If you thought that was bad, scam the internet, and you got off lightly, because uh, the, the, what, what is it about... I always felt that you got a very rough deal in terms of your timing and the way that fandom suddenly um, became the entity it was pretty much at about the time and John Nathan Turner particularly got a lot of stick yeah. I remember when he died and Doctor Who magazine did a, an article about him which talked about how actually if it hadn't been for him Doctor Who probably wouldn't have carried on Absolutely as long as true. it did. Absolutely true. Um, and do you think there's going to be a time when he's going to be reassessed more favourably by those people? I do hope so. It's, it's quite interesting because um, Russell doesn't let the fans anywhere near, does he? You know, he doesn't let his actors go to conventions, he doesn't have any contact with fan groups at all, and keeps it all at arm's length. And nobody's turning on him. JNT welcomed them in. You know, he met with fans, he went to conventions, he shared his thoughts. He realised quite quickly he had to be careful because there were people breaking into the office, stealing storylines, and getting jobs at the BBC in order that they could... They even wrote up dummy um, script titles on the wall and found that they were in the paper the next day. You know, they did it to test their theory. And, you know, this one is called, you know, The Nude Doctor. And, you know, the Daily Mirror said, New Doctor! Shock horror! So, clearly, you know, there was infiltration. And he was hoist by his own generous petard, if you like. I won't name them, but there were high-profile fans who turned on him because they felt they owned the programme. And uh, as you say, he kept it going in the, in the years that could have been darker earlier. He introduced it to America himself. He went over there and flogged it to the PBS stations over there. And that generated, there was a time when it was earning more money than it was costing to make the programme, and they still cancelled it because the BBC isn't run on, those, on that basis. Making money? No, no, we don't do that. We like to spend it. <laughs> well, did you think there's a thing about, as you say, he, because he actually went out and did the thing with the fans, and I remember you being, you know, you've always been very generous with the fans and very outgoing. I was watching you speaking to some children today in exactly the same way that you made me feel very welcome when I was a sort of 12-year-old. And that's something, that's something that 20 years later you still remember. And do you think, that, but it's interesting because then you have someone like Patrick Troughton, who is widely regarded by 
people in the industry and all the actors I know who like Doctor Who love yeah. Patrick Troughton's Doctor, yeah. and yet I don't know anything about him at all because never seen him interviewed, apart from a very strange one on the Three Doctors DVD with Pebble Mill, um, which is very odd. Um, but do, do you think that's, there's a certain thing to maintain the mystique, that perhaps things like JNT doing his stuff that he did, and even now with Doctor Who Confidential, the BBC A3 announcer last week for Doctor Who Confidential said, uh, now we take a magical television programme and shatter the illusion for 45 minutes, <laughs> which I thought was quite... Uh, do you think there's something about retaining that sense of mystery that keeps the awe well, of there is. I mean, there's huge stars at the, of the cinema in the 40s, 40s and 50s, were huge stars because they weren't in OK and Hello. They were on the screen. They were magical. You never saw or read anything else about them. You, or you might do, but it was all supposition. Now they're common currency. You know, if Bruce Willis walks down the street, you go, oh, oh it's Bruce Willis. You don't go, oh, it's Bruce Willis. And there are very few people who have that kind of effect. It might be that sports have taken over that area now, sadly. You know, it's not we performers, it's the audiences are at the Theatre of Dreams, not in front of the TV screen. You don't get 60,000 people turning up to see a player that I'm in. So I think, yeah, a lot of the mystique has gone, sadly. So maybe uh, Russell T. Davis is right in keep, keeping everything at arm's length yeah. slightly. But, but having said that, they are going for broke with <laughs> trailers and little snippets, and I just wonder if they need to. Might be braver to give nothing away at all. Spoilers on the internet and such like. Now, um, it, it, there was talk, I remember reading uh, uh, an interview with Russell T. Davis about um, the new series and saying he was tempted to cast a couple of former doctors. In, in a cameo, as a, would, that. would that be something that would uh, interest you? Uh, of course it would. I'm, I'm an actor. I want to work. Um, I suspect it won't happen because there would always be that accusation: is our ratings are flagging. You know, they need to boost it with bringing back you know, the, the old doctor. I don't know whether it would make any difference actually, because the, the new young audience wouldn't care, and it's only you, bless you, you, you die-hard. <laughs> Classic. It's classic and new, isn't it? New and classical. I've actually met people who prefer the old series. Classic. They prefer the classics. What, pe people who come to the new series, looked back yes. and gone back to right. And prefer the old stuff. And I, I find that hard to believe, I must confess. Because I prefer the new. Unashamedly, I prefer the new. I, I think, uh, not that um, Mr. Moffat needs any boosting, but I think uh, the empty child and the... Uh, the Doctor dances just streets above anything that's ever been written before. And it was one of the most moving episodes of Doctor I've ever seen. I envied Chris Eccleston that, that line, everybody lives. You know, it was, oh, I got all emotional. Don't recall getting emotional before. That's when I haven't let my son watch. Uh, if I can't afford a babysitter one night, I might make him watch it and then, then tell him that if the door goes, that's not me off to the pub. That's the... <laughs> Because that's always been a thing about Doctor Who being frightening, and I yeah, it's, it's got to be scary. But isn't I? I don't understand why that isn't deemed healthy. I was a terrified child, which meant I never did anything wrong. I wish <laughs> I wish some of the kids on the estate I live on were frightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Show a terror of the Autons and then call the police. Yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Roald Dahl hit it spot on. Roald Dahl. Parents get worried about Roald Dahl, I think it's too scary. If the parents are a bit worried, it's about right. Because I, I think part of 
the process of finding out what reality is, is investigating the unreal when you're young. That's what fairy stories are about. Fairy stories are the most grotesque stories ever. You know, boiling children and eating them for breakfast. And I can't remember which one that is, but I'm sure there is one. Um, but I mean, they are all about those fears that lurk at the back of, you know, the, the, the bogeyman in the cupboard under the bed and all that. I used to be terrified of something hiding under my bed. And I think that's very good for a child to be terrified. There's something hiding under your bed. <laughs> well, it's because there's nothing as palpable as that fear. So then, when you overcome that fear, you realise that what life throws at yes. you isn't necessarily as terrifying as you Absolutely. first thought. So in that sense, Doctor Who is. I'm, I'm quite. I, I, I'm hoping that my son gets terrified of Doctor Who because. Uh, Isn't he terrified of you? I would be. Oh well, no, he's, he's terrified he's come from me. I think that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not really, are you? Yes, I'm afraid so. Um, now, going back to um, uh, the, the way that the BBC treats Doctor Who stuff, I've never really seen yours. When, when Doctor Who came back as, as Trial of a Time Lord after the hiatus, yeah. did you have misgivings about that idea and were you in a position to actually say anything or was, was that just never a question? The second question, was I in a position? No position whatsoever. Misgivings, yes, I did. I actually do remember saying, are you sure this is a good idea? Yeah. yeah. Actually, it, we know we're on trial, so somehow going, <laughs> we're on trial, <laughs> seemed a little bit kind of uh, asking for the slap round the face. I think after um, Tom's later years, where Tom was quite heavily involved in expressing his opinion about almost everything, really, um, <laughs> the active participation of the Doctor in anything to do with decision storylines was not encouraged. But I did say to Eric Saywood, are you sure about this? I think it was a, it was a kind of death wish floating around. And it was uh, rubbing the BBC's noses and things. That, so, go on, go on, cancel this, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah all right. And they did. Well, then you have the publicity element of it. And, and I think Big Finish has done a lot to um, make people rethink their opinions of Bonnie Langford, which again, when people at the time, pe people got very cross about that, and yet JNT's position was, ah, but it brings publicity to the series. But I remember my local paper, the Shropshire Star, saying, uh, it's another nail in the coffin of this series. And that's not that's not a criticism of Bonnie Langford, that is talking about her perception within the industry with what people thought. So therefore, is that was that a double-edged piece of publicity? Well, why don't we nail that one once and for all, and say, honestly, what did you think when Billy Piper was announced? I said yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I said exactly. What did you all think? We all went, ooh dear. <coughs> and what did we say afterwards? Ah. So let's not prejudge anybody ever. Bonnie is a very fine actress, a very fine performer. She happens to have been a child actress. There happens to be a kind of attitude about what people perceive child actors and actresses to be, which may or may not be true. Sometimes it is true, sometimes it isn't. Bonnie has has survived all that. I mean, the others have fallen by the wayside. Bonnie is a seasoned performer. She's the hardest working person I've ever worked with. She was very good as Mel. I, I don't see the problem. My reaction was similar to yours when I heard she was doing it. My reaction was similar to yours when I heard that Billy Piper was doing it. And, you know, Billy was a hard act to follow. Because, you know, Billy nailed companion to the mast forever. Helped enormously by the very intelligent realisation that what happens to the companion is actually much more interesting than what happens to the doctor. Because this is a real person taken out of a situation we all know, a London estate, put into a TARDIS, 
and then we never see mother, father, sister re refer to life again. This time we do. We get the doctor slapped on the face and be called a dirty old man because he's been off with my daughter for the last year. Of course that's what would happen. Why didn't we even embrace that before? But some people don't like that. Some people call that so. I disagree, but I've just been on internet sites and gone, oh no. Um, and some people think that that emotional content is not actually what Doctor Who is about. That emotional content is, that content is, I'm not sure about the Doctor and the emotional content with the Companion. I'm not sure. I'm not saying I think it's good or bad. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure about <coughs> Freeman's character being not Rose and all that stuff. I'm not sure whether that's what I wanted, Doctor Who. I might change my mind and I might like it, or I might go the other way. The jury's out for me on that. What do you think happened in the end, going back to the, 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 the Bonnie Langford thing, <coughs> was it, because that's my sort of early, my, my generation of my memories, but from what I understand, audiences didn't used to be like that, where they would prejudge something. I mean, I, I, I remember having to justify Doctor Who to people, where they'd say, science fiction's rubbish, or whatever, and yeah. you'd go, well, why? And they'd go, well, you, special effects make me realise I'm watching television, and you go, was the square thing in the corner of the room not an indication that you might be <laughs> watching television? Um, and and I, when I was a teenager and stuff, and they suddenly started this wave of nostalgia shows, like the I Love the 60s, I Love the 90s, and suddenly, I remember when they showed repeats of Doctor Who in the 80s, it was like a window into the past and it was fascinating, it was exciting, it was beguiling because it was the pre-video age. And then suddenly you had these programmes where they'd sort of sit people down in a chair and say, slag off something from the old days because the people in the programme were wearing flares and had funny haircuts. What, what was it that you think that made us start watching television in a sort of cynical way rather than just enjoy it? Because cynicism is endemic <coughs> in society now. It's, it's easier to knock because you look cool. Liking something isn't very cool, is it? Um, being a Doctor Who fan isn't cool. Well, tough. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But, yes, it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm putting it in quotes. Yeah. It's not my opinion. But that is what some people think. And everybody's got something that's uncool to somebody else. And the sooner we realise that I'd rather have people who have any passion, whether it's a passion for the rivets that hold number plates onto the back of buses. You know, yeah. If rivets is all that interests you in your life, great, you've got an interest rather than wandering around apathetically, not doing anything. Well, it's what you say, it's a great thing when it, when because it, now, you know, as one gets older, and somebody says, who are you watching a kid's television programme? I go, well, yeah, for, but for 45 minutes, I am in an area of pure joy. I'd, I'd rather be that than unhappy, you know, and yeah. the people who say, oh, you enjoy Christmas, uh, I'm going to have a terrible time. And you think, well, I win then. <laughs> uh, One thing that has happened in the last couple of decades, I've noticed, is that sci-fi is getting less niche. Uh, who, who would have predicted um, the Mars, what is she called, Life on Mars? Yeah. That's a sci-fi program. You know, it might be a cop show, but it's sci-fi. You know? Going back in time and being a policeman 30 years before you, you actually lived is science fiction. But everyone says, oh, brilliant TV program. But no one's going, no, it's not, it's crap sci-fi. It's a good programme. Well, it's, it's typical of the way that television works now, though, because I, I, I don't know the chronology of it, but obviously that benefited from Doctor Who doing so well, because, yes. um, you know, having worked with television executives, instead of going, now, what can we think of to do new? They go, oh, that works, let's try and do something quite similar or, or along the same line. So hopefully, yes, it, it's opened them up to the idea that people don't 
sort of just instantly turn off science fiction. I'm waiting for the Holby sci-fi programme. <laughs> <laughs> The whole of the BBC will be Holby. <laughs> X Factor in Holby. Holby Blue Box, it'll be a tie-in programme. How long, how long do you think that this renaissance will go on? Do you think it could, could, could match the previous series, or do you think that we get oh, yeah, bored of things I quicker? If, I, think if, I, I think it might be one-man driven. I think as long as Russell T Davis is you know, keeping those balls in the air, I mean, we could, I suppose, talk about torture, wouldn't we? Perhaps better not. Yeah. Oh, uh, go on. <laughs> what's one out about then? <laughs> I saw this programme, that, was it the Christmas one, where you know, the, 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 this huge spaceship with these nasty creatures who chop people's arms off and they're going to destroy the world and the doctor persuades them to go away and then they get destroyed by this naughty Prime Minister lady because of Torchwood. It's very powerful planet-destroying organisation in a cellar in Cardiff where you don't know they've got a cyber woman hiding there. They couldn't organise a, a party if they had a bag of crisps. It's extraordinary. I don't get it. Well, I've, I've Do you get it? No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have we got three of the yays and the nays? Yes. Yays for Torchwood. Yay. Nays for Torchwood. Yay. 50-50. I'd say yay for its right to exist. But I don't kind of think, oh, I might, can't wait for the next episode, because I think they're going to do something naff again. <laughs> I, uh, anyone like to, to ask Colin a question? They don't care. There you go, sir. Um, Doctor Who and the Pirates, where you were uh, doing Operetta, did you have any input on doing that or not before it was commissioned? Did I have any input on whether it was commissioned? Uh, no, um, Gary Russell rang me up and said, you like Gilbert and Sullivan, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's another thing you don't admit to. Sci-fi and Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, how do you feel about you know, singing a bit? I said, in a Doctor Who story, he said, trust me, it, it's right for the story. Because my first thought was, this is getting a bit panto-ish. But uh, if you've heard it, anyone who has heard it, I think it's one of the best stories there is, because the reason he starts singing these awful songs is a very good one. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but it's it's all completely right in the story and it's all rather a, a moving story. And as a result of doing that, because they they did new words to modern Major General and the model of a Gallifrey and Buccaneer or something. Um, as a result of doing that, I got the job of Joseph Porter KCP in HMS Pinafore for Carl Rosa. Because somebody played them that and they said, oh yeah, we'll get into it. So, it, it, it got me employment, so I like it. Got <laughs> <laughs> a year's work out of it. I'd say I, I like it, but I'm slightly angry with it because I was I, had to, I was doing something important like a tax return or something that I had to get done for the next day, and I stuck it on the computer to have us background up, and I ended up stopping doing what I was doing and listening to it, and uh, and, and then being late with whatever it was that I did. But I suppose that's the but that's hypnotic good. nature of Doctor Who. That's good. The amount of times I've been in the car listening to a radio, because audio for me is, is the best medium, because everyone looks like what you want them to look like, the casting is perfect, you know, the monsters are scary, the girls are very beautiful, you know, the sunshine is bright, audio is fab, and listening to a play and you arrive at your destination, especially there at three o'clock, the play doesn't finish till quarter past, so you sit in your car and listen to the end of the play, and you're late, 
That's important. That's, that's good. No, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you like audio because it uh, enables me to mention the BBC Seven and BBC Audio Books version of my one-man show, just to tie in with your audio oh, theme there. Uh, well, I wish I'd bloody known you're in Salford this week. Uh, yes, sir. This, this one first. I'm being all David Dimble. Yes, the, the, the woman with the beard. There, that's my, David Dimble, that's my David Dimbleby impression. Let them arm wrestle for it. Yes. Well, um, when Sophie was on earlier, she, she made a point of saying that the reason the series came back was because the fans had nurtured it and supported it in the time it was off. But I think should we also ask to be paid to uh, the things that you did in that off period, and all the people did. Um, the stuff you did for, for Bill Baggs and things like that, which very much kept the flame going. Yeah, and you, you were a superb ambassador for the show, and have been ever since you were treated abominably back in the 80s uh, at that stage. I'm just wondering if you've got any particular moments of the, the, sort of the spin-off things. To be honest, I think those things kept it going for you guys, but I'm not sure it's had any effect on whether, whether no. Russell T. Davis pitched to have it done again. I'm sure, I, I think even if we'd done nothing, that would have happened. Uh, and it was good for us. It, it kept it going for us yeah. and for me as well. But it also gave us the, it kept us our faith that it might have legs. That yeah. People like you were prepared to do yeah. stuff like that. And then yeah. when Big Finish was doing it, and it then went beyond just getting Doctor Who actors, which was fantastic. And then and then getting actors like Jay, from James Boland doing a Big Finish and thinking, yeah. wow, this still you know this still has David the Warner, industry yeah. kudos. You know. Yeah. I hope it is that, and not just oh, it's, it's a day's work and I'll have it. Yes. <laughs> well, no, just casting my things because... Uh, yes, sir. Dave actually went out, went out of his way to say the big finish books and the spin-offs that were done actually reignited his interest in the series after he'd lost it. David Tennant? Uh, no, um, lost to Davis. And he said that, oh, really? that it was that that got him back into doing it. Oh, well. Got into in that case, I sit corrected. But I mean, I absolutely adore doing the big finish. I'm doing one next week. I haven't seen the script yet, but... Gather it's waiting out there for me to read. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I love doing them because I'm, I'm thin and blonde and curly haired. <laughs> <laughs> and I missed that gentleman at the back who wanted to. Did you have your hand raised when I went for the chap with the beard? Chap in the red shirt did, I think. Ask a question now! <laughs> Make it good or you're thrown out. It's interesting you say to reacquaint John Nathan Turner's era. What I find with John. The inconsistencies, I'm not having to go to your Nicola. You get the wonderful case of Andrzejewski, then followed by Twin Dilemma. You can, you can then get Time Lash, which I'm sorry if I find abysmal, being honest, then followed by the wonderful revelation of Daleks. Do you not find that the inconsistency there at times? I think any any canon of work that you know that you're subject to that kind of scrutiny, there's going to be peaks and troughs. That keeping standards up is very high. And you know, judging a script and then realising a script, there's a huge amount of things can happen. You know, a director can take a very good script and turn it into dross. Another director can take an indifferent script and make it fantastic. Um, it's very easy, with the benefit of hindsight, to make those statements. But you know, you're, you're making huge demands. There are stories in the new series that, you know, the one with Peter Kay didn't seem to fit happily into the. Doctor Who canon to me, um, but I, I wouldn't say that it was you know disgraceful that he allowed it and it was inconsistent. It's just some scripts are better than others. Some said that. How can you tell what's really good unless you've got something to compare it with? Yeah, it's all but, really and even, and even with even with Doctor Who fans, though, you know, some people will love that episode and some people yeah. will hate it, and it's the same. So for all Doctor Who fans, I like some of them, I don't like others. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that about wraps it up for Pod. We have a guest commentator next week. Catherine Dean joins us for the Doctor Who episode, Rosa. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.